All right. Well, good morning again uh, for you guys who are just joining us online. I want to welcome you into our service. If you're watching the podcast, so glad that you're checking us out in that way. We're in a series called Unstoppable, as the announcements mentioned. And uh, this idea of unstoppable is, is this idea. And so if you're taking notes, uh, I want you to pull your note sheet out. I want to encourage you to do that. We talked about this last week, that, that the church... According to God's word, the church, global church, big mission, big movement of God. The church is an unstoppable force with the power to change the world. That the church is an unstoppable force with the power to change the world. That God's global mission, that God's mission in the world, his movement in the world is unstoppable. That at the end of the day, when Jesus returns and he comes to bring a conclusion to all things, the, the, the followers of Jesus, the church, we are going to come out victorious. That the end is already written. That while the church faces persecution, opposition, trials, setback, even scandals at times, the global mission of God cannot be stopped. It's an unstoppable force. And it has the power to change the world. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. This is the rock on which I will put together my church. A church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. And so we talked last week that, that this is the reality of the church, that is, as a local church, we get to be part of God's bigger global church. And we get to be part of this mission of God that is an unstoppable thing. But the reality is this, is while the global mission of God is unstoppable, we all have seen churches who got stopped, who became derailed, who got off track. We know churches who were once open that have now closed. We know churches that were once thriving that have now declined. We know people and individuals who the same thing happened. Where at one time they were vibrant, they were passionate in following God, but then something happened in their life or a series of things happened in their life and it got them off track. They became derailed. So while the global church is an unstoppable force with the power to change the world, we also look at this reality that we as a local church and as followers of Jesus as individuals, that we're either going to join in the mission or we're going to risk missing the movement. That we're either going to join in with what God has for us and God wants for us, or if we're not careful, we're going to miss what God wants to do in and through us. And so we talked last week that the big reality of how we make sure we're on which side or the other is do we choose to live our life according to God's way or according to our way? And we began to look at the local church and we use this metaphor of a train. We started thinking about, okay, what are some things that have a great deal of power? And we said, you know, trains have a great deal of power. They're not unstoppable, as we're going to talk about here today, but they're hard to stop once they get that momentum going. But we said this, that the power of a train, right, it's not just found in the engine. It's found in every car and its mass and its movement, creating this momentum that keeps it going. And and I have to report to you, I I had some people a lot smarter than me come up last Sunday and tell me that my, uh, my physics was on point. So I was actually, you know, kind of right in my metaphor, which I thought I was, but I wasn't never sure because I wasn't great at that kind of math, right? You know, but they said, yeah, that's actually what happens. That when a train starts going, as every train moves forward, momentum is gained. And we started saying, listen, the power of the local church isn't found just in the pastor or staff or in a few leaders. The power of the local church is found in every single person playing the part that God has called them to play. And we said that God has gifted to the church leaders, but the leaders are there not to do all the work. The 
leaders are there to prepare and equip the members of God's church for the ministry that they have been gifted to do. And so we said, listen, will you step up and use your gift to serve specifically in this area of kids ministry? And church, I'm I'm excited because we had around 40 people turn in commitment cards to say that they're going to step up to serve primarily in our kids ministry to help during this transition. So we need to celebrate that and thank God for what God has been doing. Let's give God a hand for that. That's incredible. Now we're following up. And so two things. One is this, is that we're following up, trying to get people plugged in to where God's calling them to plug into. But here's the second thing. Just because 38, 39, 40 or so people said, hey, I'm willing to step up and fill a gap, it doesn't take you off the hook because you have a role to play as well. And so maybe you weren't here last week and you're, you know, we're here last week. You're like, you know, what's going on? Go back and watch the podcast because I believe this, that every person has a part to play. And as we play our role, then the church becomes unstoppable. But the reality, though, is that we look at that is, is that church can be stopped, the local church. And, and as individuals, the spiritual momentum that God wants to, to, to have in our life, if we're not careful, we can get off track. You know, there's great power in a train, but a, a train can get derailed, right? Have you ever seen like on the news, you know, a story of a train getting derailed, a train jumping off the track? And, and what, what's, what's crazy is that the power and the momentum of a train that is used primarily to accomplish good things, when it gets off track, that same power and momentum can become deadly. It can become destructive. And so what, what those who you know, are in charge of trains, who operate trains, companies who run trains, what they, what they do is they spend their time trying to figure out what are those things that can derail a train? What are those things that can get a train off track? And the primary thing, the most, the most common way that trains get off track is there's something wrong with the track itself. That there's something either on the track, something in, in the track, something with the track, and that track is messed up. And when the train comes, it jumps off that track. And so what they do is they try to figure out, okay, well, how can we prepare the track so that they'll maintain how can we make sure there's no, there's no imperfections in the track? But it's not just the track that messes things up. Sometimes trains derail because of internal problems, because of, because of internal um, malfunctions, because of user error and operator error. And so what, what train companies do is they try to identify, okay, what's the potential risk? And then how do we try to fix it? And see, in the same way that trains can get off the track, we see that local churches can get derailed, that churches can jump the track, that churches who were once on pow, on fire, who were missional, who were going out and doing important things, now all of a sudden have kind of gotten away from that. Or as individuals, we all know people who at one time were following God, they were following Jesus, and then something happened in their life, and they've got off track. And, and so the reality is this, is that while there's great power and spiritual momentum, We have to make sure that God is allowing us and we're positioning our lives to identify what potential hazards are there so that when we come across those things, that we don't lose our momentum spiritually. We don't lose our vitality for God spiritually. We don't lose what God is wanting to invite us into. And we don't get derailed. And so what I want to do today is I want to share with you from from God's word Paul, the the Apostle Paul's writing, where he talks to us about this reality of what does it mean for us to to position our life to avoid becoming derailed? How can we identify the risk that can 
help us to lose or cause us to lose that spiritual momentum? How is we, how is we as a church, how do we identify the risk? And what can we do to prevent these accidents from happening spiritually? And what the Bible tells us is this, is that, that our biggest danger, if we're taking this, write this down, that, that our biggest danger, the biggest danger to your spiritual life and my spiritual life getting off track is, is not from something outside, but it's from what is within. See, for a train company, the biggest danger for, for what causes the derailing is actually an outside thing. It's on the track. For us, though, the biggest danger, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the biggest danger to our spiritual life, for us getting off track, us losing momentum, us derailing, us getting destroyed spiritually, or us causing destruction in our life and the lives of others, the greatest danger isn't from outside forces. It's not from culture. It's not from our friends. It's not from our neighbors. It's not from what's outside. Our greatest danger actually comes from what is within. Look what James says in James 1, 13 to 15. It says, when people are tempted, they should not say, God is tempting me. Evil cannot tempt God, and God himself does not tempt anyone. But people are tempted when their own evil desire leads them away and traps them. This desire leads to sin, and then sin grows and brings death. So James says, listen, the, the danger of derailing in our life, it's not primarily something that's going to happen to us on the outside of us. It's not primarily a struggle that we're going to go through. It's not primarily something outside of us. Our primary danger is the fact that we have within us the ability to choose the opposite of what God says we should do. The Bible calls that sin. And James says, listen, that when you're tempted and you choose the wrong thing, don't blame somebody else because that desire is within you. And see, if you're a follower of Jesus, and listen, I know not everybody in this room is a follower of Jesus, and I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're exploring that. I'm so glad you're, you're asking questions about that. But, but if you're a follower of Christ today, see, we live in this, this time that I call the in-between. See, because we recognize that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he forgives us of our sin. We're made new. And he then puts us on this course and this pathway to become new, to become newer and newer and newer. Until one day when he returns or we go to be with him in heaven, that newness will become complete. And so we live in this in-between time from when God begins to start this process, the Bible calls sanctification, this making us more like him, to when we'll, we'll be just like him. In this in-between time, we live in this tension where we're no longer, what well, the Bible says, slaves to sin. We're no longer bound to follow our evil nature, our sinful desires, but they still are a part of our flesh. So maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you're like, Zach, I don't understand why I struggle with sin. It's because you're not there yet and neither am I. But James says we need to identify that the biggest thing that can get us off track spiritually, both individually and as a church, is to allow the sin within us to become a destructive thing and to derail us. And so in Ephesians 4, Paul talks to us about how can we stay on track? How can we avoid derailing spiritually? 
And he does so in the context of this, this chapter we began to look at last week. Last week we looked at chapter, uh, the chapter 1 through like 16, verses 1 through 16. It talked more about the church and how it operates. And now Paul's going to talk more about not just how the church operates, but how we as individuals and then collectively should live our lives so we can stay on the track God has for us. So look at me, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. He says, with the authority of the Lord's authority, I say this. So he's saying, listen, this is not my advice. So this is not Paul just kind of like coming up with something. He says, listen, with the Lord's authority. So I'm speaking this on behalf of God. So there's some weight behind it. Live no longer as the Gentiles do. Well, okay, who are the Gentiles, right? Well, let's kind of look at it because in, in, in that day and age, that there were really two groups of people. You had the Jewish people who were the Jews and everybody else who were the Gentiles. Now, is Paul making kind of a racial statement about this whole group of people saying, don't live like the Gentiles? Is he talking about don't live like this certain ethnic groups and that kind of stuff? No, here's what he's making the, the point of is you have the Jews who were known as God's people and you had the Gentiles who were not God's people. You had the Jews who were, were those who were living for God in, in, in a lot of ways. And you had the Gentiles. So he's saying, listen, don't live as those who are not living for God. See, a lot of the, the first Christians were Jewish people who became followers of Jesus. But then Paul said, listen, I'm also going to go preach to the Gentiles. So he's not saying, don't, you can't be a Gentile and be a follower of Jesus. He's saying, listen, that there's really two ways to live. We can live based upon God's truth in God's way, or we can live based upon another way. And the Gentiles were known as those who lived the other way. And so he says, listen, don't be like those who don't live for God. He says, because you're a follower of Jesus, because you're a believer, because you're a Christian, because you are now part of God's people, don't live like you're not. And he gives us these two ideas of, okay, well, what does it mean to live like we're a not a follower of God versus what does it mean to live like we are a follower of God? Well, he says this, let's look at verse 17 through 19. But before we do, write this down. He gives this kind of this, this idea. And he says that wrong thinking plus a hard heart will equal wrong living. So he says, don't live like the Gentiles do. Don't live in a wrong way. Don't live in an unhealthy way. Don't live in a non-productive way, a, a non-godly way. He says, listen, there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live. He says, the wrong way happens when we have wrong thinking and a hard heart. Look what he says, verse 17. He says, don't live like the Gentiles, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander from the life God gives them because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame, and they live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Paul says there's a right way to think about life and a wrong way to think about life. There's a right way to think about how we should live and a wrong way to think about how we should live. And he says, don't live thinking like unbelievers think. Now, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus today, and that just offended you. Because uh, God's word saying there's a wrong way to think. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not thinking the right way. Well, Paul said it, not me, so you can email him, okay? All right? But the reality is this, is though we don't like to accept this, there are right and wrong things in life. 
And if God is right, which we believe God is right, is his followers, and his word is true, then his word is right, and what is different than that, it's wrong. It's not as good. It's not healthy. It's not productive. It's not what he wants for us. And he says, don't think in a wrong way. He says, don't be confused. Don't be full of darkness. So think according to God's truth not your truth or your perspective or perception of truth. He says, don't think in a wrong way. And he says, then don't not just think in a wrong way, but don't have a hard heart. He says that that the Gentiles, these unbelievers, right, that they have hardened their hearts against God. That they've, they've closed themselves off relationally to the reality of God. They've resisted God's truth and direction in their life. For whatever reason, they're not open. They're not responsive. They're not willing to to trust and follow and connect with him. And and Paul says, listen, if you live with wrong thinking and you you pair that with a hard heart, it's going to lead to wrong living. And he says that that these people, right, who think in a wrong way, not according to God's truth, who who aren't open and not responsive to God in a relationship, then it leads them to live their lives in in a way that's not good. This is that they live for lustful pleasure. They eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Meaning this is that they don't live based upon the tracks that God has set forward for their life. And then Paul says, "But, but we're supposed to be, as followers of Jesus, different. Look at verse 20. It says, but that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. So Paul says, listen, that's how we all used to think. Because as a follower of Jesus, there was a point in your life where you weren't a follower of Jesus. And the Bible says that we all had wrong thinking. We all at one time had a hard, unresponsive heart to God. But because we have responded to God, because we've embraced his truth, because Jesus has come and he's made us new, he's forgiven our sin, and he's brought us eternal life, because that has happened, now we're to throw off this old way of living. So we're to let go of the wrongful thinking. We're to let go of the hardened heart. And we're supposed to let go of living life in a wrong way, not according to God's design. And so Paul says, listen, there's one way to live. It's a life marked with wrong thinking and a hard heart, which leads us to wrong living. But then there's another way. And so write this down. He says that we need to be people, if you're a follower of Jesus, who live with a right thinking. And not just with right thinking, but right thinking that, that, that has a soft heart toward God. And then lives because of our right thinking and our soft, responsive heart that lives in a right way, that lives life according to God's way, according to the track and the path and and the rails that he has put out for us to follow. Look what Paul says in verse 23. So instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes, that we need to begin to think in a different way based upon God's truth, based upon God's ideas, based upon God's reality. So he says, let God renew your thoughts and your attitudes. And he says, and and put on your new nature. That when we become followers of Jesus, the Bible says that we become new, that we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. 
And the, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel talks about this reality that, that when God makes us new, he replaces the heart that we have. Not our physical heart, but our spiritual heart. Here's what he says, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. It says, and I will give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart, that hard heart, and I will give you a tender and responsive heart. And I'll put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. So Paul says, when you become a follower of Jesus, he takes that stubborn, hard heart, that unresponsive heart out, and he gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that is open to God, a heart that is responsive to God. But we've got to make sure that we don't allow hardness to creep back into our heart. And so Paul says that, listen, that we need to have right thinking. We need to have a soft heart that God has replaced in us. And then we need to allow that to lead us to live our lives in a right way. And we don't have time to go through them all, but for, for the next several, pa- several passages and paragraphs, Paul begins to talk more and more about what this right living looks like. He says that we need to, we need to be honest and quit telling lies, that we need to uh, think about positive things, that we need to think about productive things, that we need to treat each other not with coarse talk and harsh talk. We need to be people who result in loving each other, that we don't need to slander each other. We need to be tenderhearted. And, and so much of what he talks about is about how the church is supposed to connect and live in relationship together. Because see, what we do as individuals has an effect on us as a community. See, one of the things that we've done is, as, as a Western culture is that we've taken the Bible and God's word and we've made it all about the individual. We talk about what is God saying to you? What is God saying to me? What does God have in store for you? What does God have in store for me? But the Bible was written with a different understanding. It was written in an Eastern culture and context. So the Bible talks so much about not just the individual application, but how as individuals, we're part of a larger community and how what we do actually affects other people. And so, so much of what he talks about here has to do not with just our own lives, but has to do with how we interact together. See, I don't know about you, but here's my experience is churches that jump off the track. Churches that lose spiritual vitality, they lose their momentum. Churches that split, churches that close, churches that become unhealthy. So many times, the reason behind how that happens and why it happens is not some big external force. It's not some big theological discussion. It's about broken relationships. It's about these people not liking the pastor. It's about this group of people not getting along with that group of people. And it may be a good issue, but how they handle that disagreement becomes an unhealthy thing. So this group is talking and gossiping about this group. This group is talking and gossiping about that group. This group hates that group. They make assumptions about this group. And then all of a sudden, you've got a church that's no longer focused on the mission because they're spending all their time attacking and devouring, as the Bible says, one another. Well, see, that's not right living. And it comes from wrong thinking. It comes from a hard heart. And so the reality is this, is that this isn't just about an individual thing. It's about our church. See, our spiritual vitality and our obedience as individuals in this local church, it's going to affect the the ability for the the church as, as as a body to thrive and to keep moving forward. So it's not just about us. 
But Paul says, listen, I want you to, to think about this. I want you to think about how do I live with right thinking? How do I maintain a soft heart? And then how do I make sure my life is lived in the right way? You know, have somebody come up after the first service and they go, well, well Zach, what if you combine those? You know, Paul says that there's wrong thinking with a hard heart leads to wrong living. What if you have wrong thinking and a soft heart? I'm like, wish you would have asked me that Wednesday. Right? I'm like, I wasn't really talking about that, but I was thinking about it, right? We were talking about it. I said, well, if you, so you got, you got wrong thinking, but a soft heart. So you're, you're not very wise, but you're open to God. Well, what does that look like? I think it looks like immaturity. Because it's like you got good intentions, but you don't know God's word. So that's the person who, in all good intention, tells somebody something wrong about God because they want them to feel better about themselves. But see, that's still not going to lead to right living. Okay, well, what if you have, I'm going to this right, what if you have then a hard heart, but right thinking? What if you know the right stuff, but you're not open and responsive to God? Well, what does that lead to? Legalism. The, the, the Pharisees. The people who can tell you the right thing, but don't have an ounce of love for you in telling you that. And see, that doesn't result in right living either. So it truly is about both a right thinking and a soft heart. A, a mind that knows God's truth, that seeks God's truth, and is responsive to how God wants that applied. So the question is, are we on track? You know, normally when I come to a point in the message like this, I think about one takeaway. And, and I guess if the takeaway was, was, was not a question, but it was a statement, it would be this. I want you to write this down. That we recognize this, that, that new life in Christ, that new life in Christ should result in new living. Like if you're going to summarize what Paul's saying here, I would summarize it that way. That new life in Christ, because of what God has done in us, it should result in a different way to live. That as followers of Jesus, our lives should be different than those who don't follow Jesus. That as followers of Jesus, how we think about things should be different than those who don't follow Jesus. That as a follower of Jesus, that, that our heart is responsive to God and to, to other people in a way that's different than those who don't. And that as a follower of Jesus, the way we live should look differently to those who don't follow him. See, listen, we don't earn God's love. We don't earn forgiveness. We don't earn salvation by doing the right things and having the right thinking and a soft heart and right living. Because all of our best is nowhere near perfection, which is God's standard. So in grace, he comes to us and he gives us what we can't do. He gives us Jesus. But then once we find Jesus, once we embrace Jesus, once we experience his love, his grace, his forgiveness, it should change how we live. It should change how we think. It should change how we feel. It should change what we do. So as we conclude, I want to ask you three quick questions. If new life in Christ 
should result in this new living. Let's evaluate. And I want you to ask this question. If right thinking is the goal, then what is in my mind? Then what is in my mind? Not just what's on your mind, what's in your mind. But you see, the way that we develop right thinking is to have God change the way we think. First Corinthians 12, 2, Paul writes this. He says, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by what? By changing the way you think. That we need to learn how and we need to let God lead us to begin to think in a different way. So what's in your mind? What do you think on? What do you fill your mind with? Look at what Paul says in Philippians 4.8. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That we're supposed to think about certain things, to think about, to meditate on, to, to be focused on certain things. So that the way we think, then, you know, what we have in our mind, what we put in our mind, what we think about on our mind, what's on our heart, that it should be the things of God. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 119.9. It says, how could a young person stay on the path of purity? Meaning, how can they stay on the path of, of following God? How can they stay on the tracks? And what does he say? By living according to your word. That when we allow God's word to fill our mind and for it to be in our mind and it to be what we meditate on, what we think about, it changes the way that we think. Well, if that's true, then so is the opposite. Then whatever we spend our time filling our mind with, whatever we spend our time thinking on and meditating on, it's going to determine the way that we think. Have you ever wondered if, if you've, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, but you come to church enough that you, you know this, right? Why pastors talk so much about the importance of a quiet time, of reading God's word every day, of a personal devotion. They use all kinds of words, but, but why pastors talk time and time and time and time again about how important it is to spend time reading God's word, thinking on God's word, meditating on God's word. It's because this principle right here. Because if God's word is filling our mind, if God's word is what we think about in our mind, it's going to change the way that we think. And changing the way we think will change the way that we live. And I'll tell you, there, there are weeks and there are times and seasons where I'm filling my mind with so many things. And if I'm not filling my mind with God's truth, with God's word, it changes the way I live. I'm more irritable. I'm more discouraged. I'm, I'm more likely to, to make a bad decision and to, and to fall into temptation about something. And see, I think that the same is true for your life, but is it for mine? So the question may be, what's in your mind? What are you filling your mind with? But here's the second one. Because Paul says it's not just about how we think, it's about our heart. So what's the condition of your heart? What's the condition of your heart? Is your heart soft to God today? Is it open? Is it responsive? Or is it hard? Or maybe are there areas where it's, it's hardened a little bit? Well, what hardens our heart? Well, several things can harden our heart. You know, one of those is, is doubt. 
that maybe there's a doubt about God or a doubt about his plan for your life that you just, it, it's frustrating you right now and it's, it's kind of causing this resentment to build up. Or maybe it's a disappointment. Maybe God hasn't done what you've asked him to do or he's not done it as quickly as you hoped that he would. And that disappointment is causing some, some bitterness and some, some hardness in your heart toward God. Or maybe, maybe it's not just you know, this idea of a disappointment, but, but you're downright discouraged because you feel like God is letting you down. See, in the same way that in our marriages, in our friendships, in our dating relationships, even in our parent-child relationships, that those things like doubt and discouragement and disappointment can create a hardness and a bitterness and a resentfulness that, that then causes us to, to create distance between that person relationally. The same thing happens in our faith. And that new heart becomes a little bit harder, a little more rough around the edges. And so how do we deal with that? I think we deal by first being honest. Being honest with ourselves. To say, Zach, you know what? I, I'm struggling with that. And to look inside and say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm discouraged with God right now. I'm, I'm angry with God right now. I'm, I'm, I'm bitter with God right now. I'm, I'm doubting God right now. And then once you recognize that, it's, called, it's getting honest with God about it. Listen, I think sometimes we, we think that we can't be honest with God, like he's going to be offended. Here's a secret. He already knows. But there's power when we go before God and we say, God, I don't get it. I'm discouraged. God, I, I'm, I, I'm doubting. I'm having a hard time believing you right now. When we get honest with God about that and we ask him to come in and grant that peace, grant that encouragement, grant that, I, it, it's amazing that he can begin to do that. And then sometimes it's not just talking to God about it, but it's going to somebody else we're close to and having that same conversation. Of saying, you know what? There's this thing in my life right now, this situation. I don't understand it. But I feel like I'm getting bitter at God about it. Would you, would you just pray for me? You know, do we have right thinking? Do we have a soft heart? But then the third question is really this. What's the ac action that defines your life? So if you were to take the example of Jesus, and then you were to take the example of your life, w would there be some similarities? Now, I know you're thinking, you're like, well, Jesus is perfect. I I'm not perfect. Well, God's not asking you to be perfect. He made you perfect through Jesus. But he also says that we should live our lives following the example of Jesus. So would you ever be mistaken for Christ? Would anybody ever look at your life and say, that's kind of like Jesus? See, that's what it means to follow that example. Because we're supposed to live differently. If we're living our life based and doing things in, in ways that, that, that we look at it and say, Jesus would never do this, then it's probably not the right way for us to live. So what's in your mind? What's the condition of your heart? And then what defines your life? See, new life in Christ should result in new living. 
that if we want to make sure we do all we can to, to stay on track and not get derailed, not lose our spiritual vitality, not lose our spiritual growth, not lose our love and, and passion for God as individuals in the church and as a church, we need to make sure that we're pairing right thinking with a soft heart and we're living it out in the right way. And if we're weak in one of those areas, we need to come before God and we need to ask God to do something. Because what happens when you look at that and you say, you know what? Man, I, I've got some wrong thinking. I'm not filling my mind with God's word. Or you look at that and you say, you know what? I have some bitterness in my heart. My heart's hardened toward God in some areas where there's some sin in my life. What do we do? We go back to what we know to be true about God. And it's this, that he's a God of grace, of forgiveness, of love and mercy without limits. We go back to what the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9. Let's read this together and we'll conclude. But if we confess our sins, so if we acknowledge to God the wrong thinking, the hardness of our heart, the wrong things in our life, the way we're living, if we confess those things, he will forgive our sins because we can trust God to do what is right. And it's not a one-time verse. It's an everyday promise. If we confess our sins, he'll forgive us our sins because we can trust him to do what's right and he will cleanse us from all the wrongs that we have done. What do we do when we recognize wrong thinking? A hard heart or wrong living? When we recognize that there's some danger on the track up ahead and we don't want to derail? We ask God to fix the track. We ask God to fix our thinking. We ask God to change our heart. We ask God to, to give us strength to live for him. What happens if we've gotten off track? We ask God to put us back on track. And every time we do that, he'll promise that he will. So are you riding the, 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 the track today that God has for you? What better defines your life, right thinking or wrong thinking? What better defines your life, a hard heart or a soft heart? What better defines your life, a life lived according to God's way or life lived according to your way? God has the power and the willingness to forgive everything that we've ever done, including what we're doing right now, to put us back on track. Not only put us back on track, but to give us that little push to help us move forward if we will trust in him. We're going to move into a, a time of response and, and we're going to sing a song that really talks about, God, here's my heart. God, here's my life. And, and maybe today that's where you are. You need to come back to him and say, God, I need you to come and to soften my heart. I need to just commit to you my thinking and my living again. As I was thinking about this message and I, was, I thought, you know, God, what, what do you want us to remember about you? And I thought about the Lord's Supper. See, the Lord's Supper, communion, some people call it the Eucharist. It's, it's, it's what we believe to be the, the, the symbolic way God has told us to remember his death. That, that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he was going to be arrested and he was going to be put to death on a cross and be raised to life three days later when he was going to do what it needed to be done so that we could have hope in life and be loved and, and forgiven. He took a meal that the Jewish people had, had done and were doing, and he put a new spin to it. The Bible said he took a piece of bread and he said, this bread represents my body. 
a body that will be broken for you. And so when you eat this bread, I want you to remember me. Remember what I have done because I love you so you can have life and hope and forgiveness. And then he says he took the cup. And he said, this cup represents the blood that's going to be shed for you. And this new commitment, this new agreement that if you, for, if you ask for forgiveness, I'll give it to you and I'll cleanse you of your sin. Whenever you take this cup and you drink it, I want you to remember me. And so from that day forward, early followers of Jesus, the very first Christians, practiced this supper, remembering the body of Jesus broken, the blood of Jesus that was shed. And because of that, the hope and the life that we can have. And so as we sing this song, we reflect on these questions. We ask God to kind of examine our heart. I want to invite you to, to take the Lord's Supper. We've got two stations over here, two, over, two on this side. And listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited to come take the elements. You don't have to be a member of our church. You could be an out-of-town guest. But listen, if you, if you say, Zach, I've chosen Jesus, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, then you're invited to come. And so what we're going to do is we're going to stand in a minute. I want to pray for us. We're going to sing this song. And as you feel led, I want you to come to one of the stations, grab the bread, grab a cup, and then you can come to the front and kneel if you'd like to and take the elements. You can go back to your seat. You can gather as a family. It's, it's totally up to you, however you want to practice this. But I want to encourage you to do so with the, the, the thought in your mind of God. What is it you want me to know today about you? What is it that you're wanting to do in my life. And then take those elements as you feel led. We stand with me as we pray. God, we come to you today and we thank you for your word. God, the promise and the truth that you've given us and we, God, celebrate your supper today. The bread that represents your body. Jesus, the cup that represents your blood. And we take these remembering that because of the broken body and the shed blood and the resurrection from the grave, that we have hope in life eternal. So God, do your business in us. Help us to walk out, God, more like Jesus than we walked in. God, we give this time to you as we respond in Jesus' name. Amen.